Today on The Courier Daily, how cannabis brands are faring the crisis. One of the hurdles that we saw early on with e-com was there was a feeling that if you gave your information online, you were now on some database as being a cannabis consumer and you wouldn't be able to travel to the U.S. or gain future employment. I think, you know, again, I'm grasping for silver linings here. I think one of those things is this has broken down that barrier a lot out of necessity. And it was a kind of artificially perceived barrier, but one that still existed. So I think this allows for a faster transition. And this has also forced a better distribution system. Click and collect is something that wasn't available before. And now I would imagine would be there going forward. Then we're with the co-founder of one of London's most beloved stores for some retail therapy. I mean, it's been immensely stressful, at times a little bit traumatic. Of course, dealing with a workforce and going through the management of that was emotionally and physically draining. Business-wise, our business is literally 50-50 online and physical retail, so we lost our store, which is a big part of our business because it is a busy store. If you know that store, it's a busy store, you know? That's a significant loss that we're just trying to manage at the moment. We're not sleepwalking into the void, but adapting very fast. And later, I'm with Courier's design team to hear some good stuff that's caught their eye. I found this website because I'm trying to drink pretty much like sustainable style of natural winemaking. There has been this huge trend of natural winemaking and people drinking a lot more of that over the past few years. But it is sort of hard for people to understand what's good and what's real natural wine, as opposed to just like larger companies now sort of jumping on that bandwagon. So I found this awesome website. It's called Low Intervention, lowintervention.com. And it's got the most ridiculous animated alien when you land on the website, which is like totally nuts, but it's got some really cool wacky design. And I think it goes hand in hand with the really cool sort of wacky style of winemaking. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. It's the 15th of April, and this is the new daily podcast from Courier. We're checking in with business owners and experts all over the world to find out clever ways to adapt and grow. And first up today, we're in Canada with Josh Lyon. He's the Senior Director for Partner Brands at Canopy Growth Corporation, which is one of the world's largest cannabis companies. And Canopy owns a bunch of businesses, including Tokyo Smoke, the design-focused recreational brand with dispensaries and coffee shops all over Canada. And, you know, Josh, I'm, I know you're not a spokesperson for the industry, but I hoped we could kick it off with a bit of a, a brief rundown of how the sector has been hit so far by the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, I think for cannabis, like any business who is still running, it's an interesting, unprecedented time right now. And cannabis in Canada, medicinal cannabis has been deemed an essential service. So that means we can continue to go in, grow the product, harvest the product, sell the product. Recreational cannabis, sometimes it's essential, sometimes not. It's vacillated back and forth uh, province by province. So each province has kind of outlined their own essential businesses. So The one thing I would say for Canada and cannabis in general is that it's been an industry that's has just constantly been in flux. And so the ability to pivot to naturally be able to be kind of adapt to the changing environment is something that we're quite used to. But this this is unprecedented. And I think it is one industry that we are able to continue to sell products. We are able to continue to sell via e-com, bricks and mortar retails adapting, whether it's click and collect, when stores are allowed to still be open. So 
the industry is still running, um, as we've seen from early data. Consumers are stockpiling, so there's still a demand for products. You see lines outside of stores. The one thing that will be interesting as time goes on is to understand if consumption is increasing or consumers are just stockpiling because either they don't want to leave their house as much, they're worried that it will be deemed a non-essential service and they won't be able to buy products. So the industry as a whole needs some time to see if this is a behavioral change in terms of consumption or just like a... I'm stockpiling because I'm worried and I need to get everything I can. I mean, one would think that given just the rise in anxiety and stress generally, that consumption and demand would probably go up. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that would be my hypothesis is people are looking for ways of dealing with this, whether it's anxiety and you know potential impacts on mental health to literally, how do I fill my time? And I'm bored and I'm trying to make things more interesting. So, you know, whatever the impetus is for potential increased consumption, I would expect that we would see a rise. Obviously, you know, Canopy owns a number of different, you know, cannabis brands. One of them is Tokyo Smoke, great retail brand, you know, brick and mortar. Have they had to quickly adapt to e-commerce? Was e-commerce already a really strong component of Tokyo Smoke in particular? Yeah, so e-commerce was always a big component of our business. Again, when it comes to Canada, it depends province to province. So in some provinces like Manitoba, we are allowed to run our own e-com. In some provinces like Ontario, it's through the Ontario Cannabis Store. So how the retail model actually comes to life for consumers will differ province to province. We are seeing um, in provinces where we control e-com that there's a massive, massive, massive uptick. Um, people are getting more comfortable with buying from home, whether it's cannabis or other products, and we're trying to adapt and change our strategies to meet those consumer needs. In provinces like Ontario, where we have stores that have licensed our brand name, they own, they operate, they're just using the Tokyo Smoke Marks, you're allowed click and collect. So we've seen a big uptick in that as well. Again, people you know, not being able to actually navigate the store, understanding what they want, going in curbside pickup or whatever that infrastructure is at store. We're seeing a change in consumer behavior. It's really interesting for cannabis, it being such a nascent industry. Previously, we had seen many consumers wanting to come in store to interact to talk to a bud tender, to take their time learning, asking questions. So when you can't replicate that in-store environment, we're really looking at how do you bring that bud tender helpful experience online so consumers still get that high-touch service. They can still ask their questions in an environment where they're not physically, you know, with an associate. And with a product like that, I mean, you, don't, you can't just leave it on the doorstep, I imagine, right? Yeah, exactly. So you still have to show ID, you still have to verify your age. So, you, you know, in Ontario, for example, I just did delivery from the OCS. And you have this weird kind of thing where you're, you're showing your ID from far away and the guy is squinting to see if you're of age. So it's, it's still working out the kinks of exactly how the delivery works. It's still a heavily involved category when it comes to information and education for a lot of consumers. And so, again, it's all about, especially with 2.0 products coming out, which are your vapes, your edibles, your drinkables. They're so new. Consumers have so many questions. And it's really, really tough to be able to address those in a manner that make people feel comfortable and safe, like they have the information they need to make an educated purchase. What are the silver linings that you see within the industry? Are there any particular sectors within the cannabis industry that might come out of the crisis in a bit of a better position than other ones? I think 
one reality of the situation is, you know, again, cannabis being new, being so hyper-focused on establishing your brand, your company, your pipeline, your services, brand awareness, all those things that you're trying to build. This has ensured that we're all kind of taking a step back and understanding like, okay, we're all part of a larger community. We all live in this ecosystem together. How can we help? Whether if it's donating equipment, um, donating different chemical compounds so that hand sanitizers can be made. I think the silver lining is you become closer with the businesses around you. And this has also started the debate around when it comes to federal funding, for example, a lot of cannabis businesses were exempt from funding. So even though you're a legal business where you're looking around at your neighboring businesses who are all applicable for this funding, cannabis isn't. And so we've seen changes in essentially the identification realization of cannabis as a legitimate legal business, which we are. Um, those conversations are happening in the U.S. where, you know, obviously it's more fragmented state by state. Canada has been very good at recognizing cannabis as, you know, a legal business, a legal tax paying business. I think it's also silver linings. You know, I, I struggle to find many. It, it's a really tough time. Internally, you look at the company and the culture that you've built, and it's nice to see people coming together and working to help each other out and their communities around them. It's nice to see people's first instinct being, how can we protect our company, our employees, our consumers? Really, I think what this has sped up for us and for many other companies and businesses, again, not related to cannabis, is this transformation to a digital ecosystem and the comfort level with people buying online, um, whether they're giving their credit card information. One of the hurdles that we saw early on with e-com was there was a feeling that if you gave your information online, you were now on some database as being a cannabis consumer and you wouldn't be able to travel to the U.S. or gain future employment, I think. You know, again, I'm grasping for silver linings here. I think one of those things is this has broken down that barrier a lot out of necessity. And it was a kind of artificially perceived barrier, but one that still existed. So I think this allows for a faster transition. And this has also forced a better distribution system. Click and collect is something that wasn't available before. And now I would imagine would be there going forward. End state, hopefully we all come out of this okay, and it actually provides a better buying ecosystem for the consumer, something that is more friendly for their needs, their wants, and desires. Next up, we're in London to hear how one of the capital's most beloved brick-and-mortar stores is faring the crisis, and that is Goodhood. Kyle Stewart founded the company with his partner, Joe, just over a decade ago, and they stocked the shop with tons of niche indie brands from fashion to homeware. And of course, like all stores right now, Goodhood has closed its doors and e-commerce has become the name of the game. So how's business been? Well, here's Kyle. I mean, it's been immensely stressful, at times a little bit traumatic. Of course, dealing with a workforce and going through the management of that was emotionally and physically draining. Business-wise, our business is literally 50-50 online and physical retail. So we lost our store, which is a big part of our business because it is a busy store. If you know that store, it's a busy store, you know. That's a significant loss that we're just trying to manage at the moment. We're not sleepwalking into the void, but adapting very fast and pivoting to an online-only model which is an uh, opportunity for us. Have you seen e-commerce sales rise, though, from what it normally is? Yes. 
we're up online, which is good, which is refreshing to see. Uh, we have elements of our business that trade solely online. The upsurge in online is not comparable to losing the channel store, but it, we are doing okay online. Obviously, as you've heard and read, different product categories sell, which is again, is good for us. It's an opportunity because we have a lot of those products that, you know, kind of like um, trickled out before, but now they're selling actually really quite well. Such as what? What kind of product categories? Hand wash, <laughs> things that are very relevant to the current situation. Where do you keep your inventory now for the store? Is it all inside the store at the moment? We have a warehouse, but where we cleared the store out. We've actually emptied the store. It just seemed to us that there was no point in having our stock split between multiple locations. We made a quick decision. Let's get all our stock under one roof so that we can try to behave like an online-only proposition. There's a lot of um, nuance and inefficiencies from having multiple locations that are quite hard to manage from a stock perspective. You guys talk a lot of fantastic international brands from, you know, from around Europe, US, Japan. Has the supply chain been affected in such a way whereby you're having trouble accessing some of the more obscure brands from overseas? We've been in contact with all our brands trying to manage our stock because one of our issues is, you know, we've lost a massive channel for us. So we have potentially too much stock. So we're just trying to manage that. What I think we're hearing from most brands is that they are reducing their their next run of supply. So they're actually, they're suppressing the amount they'll deliver. I mean, I, I think it's going to have a bit more of an impact on the supply chain for a, a bit longer term, but not entirely sure. And it's not clear at the moment. Do you think basically you'll become so comfortable with a healthy e-commerce business model that you might not even want to go back to a robust brick and mortar presence at all? Yeah, we're, we're looking at all of that. As I said, it's, this is quite an interesting opportunity for us just to pivot around. I mean, we're a small enough company that we should be adaptable. If anything, this is a real realization that if we're not adaptable, then, you know, you're, you're going to die. And so just looking at the, the points of our business that are not adaptable and are not easily manageable and just trying to relook at them and, and make them work in a better way. You know, so for instance, cleaning the store out, you know, it's like, well, that would never have happened. You know, but it's like, well, we just packed the store down in under a week, got all our stock under one place. We could open another store anywhere. You know, so having that level of versatility is nice because it is quite empowering. You know, rather than being stuck into lock-headed battle with our landlords, which we currently are. I mean, for us, for myself and Joe, my partner, you know, it's very much about survival at the moment. We're just so used to that. I mean, that's what it's like being in business. You know, I feel like we've had 12 years of it. The young ones, they kind of look like they don't know what's happened. But, you know, we're sort of thick-skinned enough to be like, oh, we'll, we'll get through it. It'll be okay. And finally on the show, a bit earlier today, while trying to get some sun on my balcony, I caught up with Courier's design team, Kate McInerney, Charlotte Matters, and Sophie Kirk, for a look at some interesting stories they've seen, some silver linings, and anything else that's caught their eye. Well, we started our conversation with Kate, our creative director and resident food and drink expert, who is right now particularly obsessed with nicely designed wine labels. 
I've actually been trying to find some inspiration in things other than Instagram and TikTok because I find myself in social media holes on a regular basis. And I'm not sure if I'm just convincing myself that my increase in wine consumption is actually for creative inspiration and research, but I've, I've genuinely become obsessed with wine labels. I think it started when I, I got sent that magnum of got Ogal. I'm not actually sure how to say that. I think I just butchered that, but red wine for my birthday, courtesy of Korea. Thank you very much. <laughs> this one had a really cute illustration on it by one of our regular contributors, actually, Anya Yaga. She's an incredible, incredible uh, German illustrator and I love her stuff. So I have now started buying more wine as research. To be clear, so this is like, is this a website or an article that you found that just lays out a bunch of cool wine labels or not? No, I am actually just researching these wine labels off my own back and finding nice ones and building up a bit of a collection. The latest one that I have actually is a bottle of Cabernet Franc called Sebastian David Hurlebaloo. Again, I've probably butchered that, but it's beautiful. It's kind of like a scripted word across the label. There is absolutely nothing else on it. It's in red. It's super cool. And yeah, I'm finding lots of typography inspo and things like that from it. So it's it's a win-win basically. We just bought a, a wine bottle that's a Spanish wine and it's something called like the fat pig or something and if you read the back oh, of it i love it? that one the description is it. really hilarious because it's like we named this after the bankers who didn't give us a loan after we asked for a loan so like fuck the bankers and fuck you know i capitalism. i honestly i think wine labels are like they're very cool charlotte i mean you're obviously very much into wine i mean you were probably the one who picked out the wine that kate's talking about right yeah that's right kate. was she pronouncing it right no, of course I wasn't. Good or gal, maybe? I don't know. I'm probably going to say it wrong as well. But no, Aussie's butchering yeah. it. Behind you on the Zoom call, actually, I see about 13,000 bottles of wine, Charlotte. I think you've been getting into your own little stash. Uh, yeah, I'm also collecting wine at the moment. I, I feel like it's, I'm not so much collecting as drinking, not to sound like an alcoholic, of course, but there's this amazing um, website. Mainly, I found this website because I'm trying to drink pretty much like sustainable style of natural winemaking. There has been this huge trend of natural winemaking and people drinking a lot more of that over the past few years. But it is sort of hard for people to understand what's good and what's real natural wine as opposed to just like larger companies now sort of jumping on that bandwagon. So I found this awesome website. It's called Low Intervention, lowintervention.com. And it's got the most ridiculous animated alien when you land on the website, which is like totally nuts, but it's got some really cool wacky design. And I think it goes hand in hand with the really cool sort of wacky style of winemaking. And they're doing like really great subscriptions. So like a hundred quid for a case and sending them all around Europe and the UK. So I'm getting right into that. Yeah. And Sophie, I mean, the crisis has also encouraged a lot of brands and small businesses, you know, to be more creative with how they approach their audiences and their customers. And that's something you've looked into lately as well, right? Given the fact that a lot of people have a bit more free time on their hands and they're looking to use it in a kind of productive way, it's encouraging a lot of people to get a bit more hands on um, and start making and getting into crafts and picking up new hobbies and things like that. Not just that as well, but I think it's encouraging small sort of brands and businesses to be a bit more creative about how they approach their audiences um, using different platforms, online and digital platforms that they might not have usually used. 
I've seen a lot of call outs for creativity, things like submissions for uh, competitions or open calls for public creative work. Uh, for example, Law Magazine did an open call for a positive poster relating to the crisis. So take a phrase, take a theme, whatever you like, and submit a poster relating to this. Um, they had like hundreds of thousands of applications um, that was run over Instagram. And they were offering sort of cash prizes for the, their favourite three or whatever. But some of the submissions are amazing. And it's kind of interesting to see that it's a global effort as well. It's not just um, honed into London where Laura based. And we've seen tons of like makers, you know, whether it's like pottery or whatever, printmaking, I imagine, which you're really into, like just offer like home editions of doing that, right? Like kits or boxes. Yeah, absolutely. Things like Collage Club London, they have been doing paper, so collage kits. They put together loads of scraps and materials, send them out, and then they run a competition every week just on Instagram. And you can put together a collage related to a theme. Uh, they've been quite popular and have had sort of huge requests and been selling out really quickly. I've also seen some uh, Terrazzo coaster workshops uh, from Kate Gillies. Uh, she normally does them in person, obviously, and she's doing them over Zoom now. So she sends you the kit and then you work with her on Zoom to create the Terrazzo materials. It is about adapting and it's about taking a format that you are comfortable with and, and kind of shaking it up a bit. And we also don't know how long this could go on for. So it's kind of interesting to see how they take these kind of things forward. Maybe this will change the way they run workshops um, moving forward in the future. My special thanks to Josh Lyon, Kyle Stewart, Kate McInerney, Charlotte Matters, and Sophie Kirk for today's show. Make sure to send me any business questions you want answered, and we might be able to feature it in an upcoming show. Just record your question in audio format and email it to me at daniel at couriermedia.co. And as ever, sign up to Courier Weekly, our email newsletter, for more stories of pivoting, adapting, surviving, and growing. That's at couriermedia.co slash sign up. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. Courier Daily is back again tomorrow.